How can you use Bayesian tools and optimize your models in industry? What are the best ways to communicate and visualize your models with non-technical and executive people? And what are the most common pitfalls? In this episode, Colin Carroll will tell us how he did all that in finance and the airline industry. He'll also share with us what the future of probabilistic programming looks like to him. You already heard from Colin two weeks ago, so if you didn't catch this episode, go back in your feed's history and enjoy the first part. And as a reminder, Colin is a machine learning researcher and software engineer who's notably worked on modeling risk in the airline industry and building NLP-powered search infrastructure for finance. He's also an active contributor to open source, particularly to the popular PyMC3 and Orvis libraries. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, Episode 3, Part 2, recorded October 18, 2019. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbasestats.anvil.app. That's learnbasestats.anvil.app. Let me show you how to be a good busy and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Wes Abazian is someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. Abazian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes. So maybe we can turn to more of an industry point of view now because I know it's a question I often get because I'm working in industry like you did. Often what I hear is people in business tell me that Bayesian methods are really interesting but usually are too hard to implement and it takes too long to fit a model and I wonder where you agree or disagree with this assessment and why? I do agree that it takes a long time. It all comes back to how much you care about getting certain results that you might not be able to get otherwise. So in finance in particular, Quantopian company, a startup out of Boston, has given a lot of support to PyMC3 and a number of their employees have been contributors. They've also built some of the biggest and most interesting financial models using PyMC3. And so I often look to them when I'm wondering about what sort of hardware you need in order to sort of fit these huge models. I think when you're doing this in industry, you do have to start from a very simple model and build up piece by piece. I think a pitfall people fall into is building sort of the entire model all at once and it either fails or it fits too slowly and that's sort of the end of the day. So yeah, I think you can get pretty far by building up slowly. I think we on the tool building side still need to work harder on how to help guide people in their model building. And I think that there's a lot of work going on there on how to like say like, hey, this part of your model is hard. Like, do you really need this? Maybe if you changed this prior, some way to clue people in how to make things go faster. I mean, it's this folk theorem in Bayesian sampling that if your model is fitting slowly, you might have the wrong model. And so some way of warning people when that's happening and helping people fix that would be great from our side and great from the industry side. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like something starts small and get bigger after. <laughs> yeah, there's a great new case study that Andrew Gelman just published. And I've got a PyMC3 
port just about ready to go. And I've, I've already seen also a TensorFlow probability port that looks ready to go. But it's really interesting in that it's like people are putting, golfers are putting. Yeah. And so you have this summary data of how often people make a putt from two feet away, three feet away, all the way up to 70 feet away. And you're sort of trying to fit this curve. And Andrew Gelman goes and first fits just logistic regression. You know, what's the probability that you'll make it from this far away? And then goes back and does a physics-based model of like saying, hey, maybe your accuracy, you know, the angle a golfer can hit it at has a certain error rate and starts fitting that and there's like this old data set and there's a new data set and on the new data set that angle-based model takes forever to fit and it turns out that once you add in that hey the new data set has longer distances and people also have trouble controlling how far they hit a ball like maybe they hit it too short maybe they hit it too far for very long putts that actually makes the model fit much faster and much more accurately right. and so you go from like this three second model on a smaller data set to like on a new bigger data set it takes like six minutes to fit and then you go and add in this whole distance thing which makes the model look a lot more difficult because you're doing all this like really fun geometry and you're doing it either in Theano if you're using PyMC3 or you're doing it in Stan but so the model looks much more complicated but then it fits in three seconds again oh, yeah. and it's a much better fit Yeah. so being able to figure out solutions like that without having to be Andrew Gelman would be a, a really great thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I heard there is only one of them right now, so it's, uh, yeah. it's quite hard. I'm sure Columbia would be happy to find more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's true that uh, sometimes you get some tricks like that that almost feel like yeah, magic. I mean, uh, when I first discovered what standardizing your predictors in a regression can do, I mean, it's... Awesome. I mean, for people getting stuck in generalized linear model, for instance, where you've got distortion of the outcome space because of the link function, maybe your model can sample or samples really slowly just because your predictors are not uh, standardized them. And in seconds, your model fits. It's yeah. amazing. And I feel like with the rise of Coursera and all these great online resources of how people learn about data science, there's sort of a standard way of doing data science that doesn't map neatly onto how you're doing these Bayesian methods. And sort of one thing is what you're talking about is this pre-processing of features. There's a lot of confusion over how much you should or shouldn't do that, how much that will or will not help. This is why I keep emphasizing that you care about the uncertainty in your parameters is how does that fit into cross-validation? Like people fit a Bayesian model and then they want to go and say, well, what's my prediction accuracy? I say, ah, that's not really like what you're looking at here. But it's a fair question is what are you looking at and how do you optimize that? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I put the example you told me about the PyMC3 port uh, of the Gallman study you, you did in the show notes because I guess it's really interesting and it talks about uh, what you're uh, talking about. And maybe uh, one emphasize to put on also is on priors for this type of stuff. Uh, my experience has been that, yeah, if you carefully think about your priors and do priors predictive checks, it can really make a model sample period or a sample more quickly. And plus your priors have a kind of a scientific meaning and it's very important to have these regularizing priors to as you said uh, have a model that after that you understand and can really think about i guess yeah as you mentioned that i remember also these prior predictive checks so that means sampling from your model without having any data involved so you're essentially sampling new data sets that's something we added to pymc3 for one of these industry applications and realized how useful it could be and we're trying to build that in as sort of first class citizen for pymc4 Mm. Um, because, yeah, that is such an important part of a good workflow is, is you sort of want to be able to generate data, say, hey, does this data make sense? Yeah. Part of this 
Stan group. It was like Dan Simpson, Paul Berkner, gosh, and, and two other people did a visualization and a Bayesian workflow, I think was the name of the paper. And they're looking at pollution in Copenhagen. Mm. And they're finding that the prior that they did, once you go and run your prior predictive checks, said that the concentration of this one pollutant in downtown Copenhagen could be like denser than a neutron star. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, so they had there these, is a problem there. Yeah. 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 So they, they're like, hey, like, let's have like permissive priors, but let's not be stupid. Yeah. And I think that's a great point. Yeah, indeed. Prior predictive checks, uh, I love them. I do that all the time. And yeah. It's, it's really helpful. And um, well, actually, you yourself uh, implemented some Bayesian models in, in finance, in, in the online industry, uh, for instance. So maybe you can talk about how can PyMC3 or maybe even probabilistic programming in general uh, be used in industry and maybe if you have interesting examples for our listeners. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier at Freebird, this flight startup, we were looking, and I'll, I'll speak in generalities, but we were looking at how to price coverage for a ticket. So the idea roughly is you buy a ticket to fly someplace and then you could buy coverage on that ticket. And if it gets canceled, we'll find you another ticket to get there. So it's a little different from flight insurance where flight insurance traditionally would just give you your money back. Whereas we might have to pay more or we might have to pay less. Yes. This was also interesting in finding there's $120,000 flight from London to to Dubai, I believe, <laughs> right? Which which really like throws your models off. Yeah, uh, I guess. Because like, hey, maybe someone bought this like $200 flight and now we have to pay $120,000. <laughs> but yeah, in any case, so they would go and buy a new ticket for you instead. And so there's a lot of things that you need to look at here. But one like sort of basic sanity check might be what's our worst day? What's the worst day this year going to look like for our company? So this sort of informs how much cash on hand you might need. So you might want to know what's the worst day in the next year, in the next five years, and in the next 10 years. If you look back at sort of historical flight data in the United States, right, there was 9-11 where 100% of flights were canceled. That would probably hit all sorts of special considerations, right? We would not be able to find a replacement flight for anyone's flight because all the flights are canceled. But you go back and look and there is sort of this distribution of how many flights are canceled on any given day. And most days are pretty good. It's just there's occasional like big winter snowstorms that end up knocking out just enough that you end up getting 20 or 30% of flights across the country canceled. And then this is where a Bayesian model really becomes useful is I mentioned before you have this correlation structure. So you have to know that when something in at LaGuardia is canceled, if you know that LaGuardia has a lot of cancellations, you're assumption about how JFK is doing it has to be much worse, right? The more cancellations LaGuardia has, the more cancellations you expect JFK will have. At the same time, the more cancellations those two have, the more you'd expect a replacement ticket will cost. So all of these, compared to what your naive napkin uh, estimate would say, all of these are sort of piling on and saying like, hey, you need to do something a little more careful for your analysis if you want a business like this to be successful. So this was a lot of the work that we were doing at the Freebird was looking at these correlation structures, figuring out the ways in which risks are sort of additive rather than just being independent risks. So that was a really interesting application. Yeah. You'd like to build these models separately, but if you want to pay attention to the correlations between price and cancellation rates, then you sort of have to build them all as a joint model. Yeah. And actually, did you guys build this model from scratch? Like you just went from the data set and build that from scratch? Or did you have like first model to base it on? There's a nice fact that there's tons and tons of data that the U.S. government provides. And so you can use historical data for a long time and until you're asking pretty careful questions. This sort of goes back to when is Bayesian analysis appropriate. If you're asking about like cancellation rates between JFK and Denver, you've probably got 10,000 flights between JFK 
in Denver for any given carrier. And so like, do you need a model for that? Or maybe you can just look at the average and maybe the average is fine. And so, yeah, we, we started off with essentially, you know, glorified counting, which I'd argue a lot of data science is glorified counting. But yeah, then once you start asking these more nuanced questions, I think you do need to use more nuanced tools. And that's when these Bayesian models started coming in handy. And that's also actually using just raw count data became really useful at that point because this prior predictive distribution just looks like your raw count data. Yeah. And so if you're really familiar with that, you're going to be really good at setting these priors and making sure that the model you write down actually expresses how you feel about the world. Mm. And how much time did you take to build this model? Once you want to build the model and once you have an idea, the hard part for a lot of these industry data science projects is figuring out the right question to ask, the mm. right question to answer, what data sources to use. And sort of once you figured all that out, putting together the model, you know, probably takes a week or something. Oh, yeah. The difficult things after you've put the model together are all these things about like, how is the model doing? What does a better model look like? If we want to improve this model, what do we need to do or what do we need to prove on that? So there was a lot to talk about, about like, now that we have a model, how do we make sure it's not a bad model? And how do we make sure we're putting the best model out there? So I guess this workflow must take months to implement, right? Yeah, and I think that there's still no like convergence on what it means to be doing a good job. One of my favorite things to do was to go and look at your posterior predictive checks, which produce new data sets that you would have observed, and then look at what you actually observed. So if you train a model a month ago, you can do your posterior predictive checks for the next month. So you generate 30 days worth of data. Then you look at your actual 30 days. Those 30 days should be uniformly distributed inside that posterior predictive check. So you can sort of like have this sliding window looking back and making sure that your data looks pretty uniform inside there. This feels good and bad. It's good in that you're watching how your model is doing. You're sort of dealing with probability in a nice way. It feels bad in that like you're just eyeballing it. Like you're just yeah. looking and saying like, yeah, that looks pretty good. But to be honest, most of the times when we had a bad model, it was quite obvious. You would see all of the data would be lower than what your posterior predictive check said, or higher, or would be to the left or to the right of it. So your posterior predictive would be too confident, and everything would be outside of the bounds that the posterior predictive check predicted. So you just have like a huge bar on the left, huge bar on the right. Uh, okay, and, that's and so, reassuring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's not. And then the other thing would be if it's not confident enough, you just have a tower in the middle. But all these are sort of very obvious signs. There, It wasn't often that you're just looking at it and you're like, ah, is it or isn't it? Mm. It's usually like, oh boy. Or like, yeah, that looks pretty good. Yeah. In so, a sense, that's better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I sort of left before we got to a place where we had just one number that you could check and say like, that's good. Part of me isn't sure that there's one number that you could check, but we're sort of at the point where you could eyeball it and say like, yeah, that looks like it's doing pretty well. Yeah, that's good. So I guess also when you're in this workflow of maybe not model building, but after the model checking part, maybe you have to deal with non-technical people and non-statistics people, I mean, business people, marketing and so on. So I guess in that circumstance, you need visualization. I wonder, because you work a lot with DataViz, I mean, RViz is basically a big part is also how to visualize your model. I wonder, how did you communicate your results to the different people involved in these projects? And maybe what were the most effective ways? Maybe it depended on the population. Also, which concepts were the most difficult in the other end to import? Yeah, so somehow like the data visualization goes along with like a probably misguided attempt to be a web developer um, on my part. So I, I really enjoy doing like things that are not science some of the time. I guess it's just like sort of a different itch, which is not to say that web dev and uh, visualization is not science. But two things I'd say towards that. One, on the data visualization side, once you have 
sort of, let's say it's a posterior predictive check on how much you'll have to pay out each day in terms of the insurance that you've sold. On a day where 10% is canceled, like maybe the total cost is going to be $4,000. So that'll be one draw from your posterior predictive check. Yeah. One thing you can show, because just showing people distributions is a lot and people sort of have trouble internalizing this. But if you're talking about like these extreme value events, like the high risk events, you sort of show the whole distribution of outcomes that might happen. You know, go run the model for a long time. You get a million possible outcomes you might get. Then have another chart below it that cuts it off at the 99th percentile. And you say something in here will happen three times a year. The x-axis is going to look much worse there. That x-axis is going to start at a really high number. And then go and cut that off at the 99th percentile. This is like your one in 10 year event. Yeah. And you say like, this is probably what you want to have cash on hand for. Even though you, you've gone to the top 1% of the top 1% and like that doesn't happen often. But if you're a company that expects to stay in business for 10 years, I think that sort of drives the point forward that like when you're looking at what your typical days look like, you should know that you'll have three of these days and you'll have one of these days yeah. sometime. That was one way to sort of talk to executives was have the same plot three times, but like really drawing into the part that you want to care about. Uh, that's interesting. Isolating some parts of the posterior distribution, which also allows you to convey the idea that you have to think probabilistically. Yeah, I've seen in sort of the data visualization world, Matthew Kay he has some really beautiful libraries in R. Um, he does these quantile dot plots. And so he'll divide his data up into, say, 10 bins, and he'll put a s stacked circles out on the chart. So what you can do is you can go look at it and see like, oh, there are three circles to the left of 10. Mm. And so I have a 30% chance that whatever this is will be less than 10. He talks about bus arrivals. Oh, yeah. So he says, hey, if I'm going to be gone, if I'm going to come back here in 10 minutes, there's a 30% chance I'll miss the bus. And that's much easier to read than a histogram because you can just count how many bubbles there are to the left of 10. I've thought about trying to do that for these sorts of plots is if you have like 100 bubbles and you say like this top bubble is a bubble you still need to care about because it happens three times a year. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, that is. Yeah, you must definitely send me the link to that so yeah. that they can put it in the show notes. I guess uh, many listeners will be interested. <laughs> At least I am. <laughs> the other interesting thing, thing to do with these posterior predictive distributions was actually building a web interface with them. We had at Freebird customer service people who were extremely valuable to the company, right? Your flight gets canceled. Instead of going to your airline representative, you just call up Freebird and they'll talk to the airline representative. They'll get you on your new flight. So they're really good at finding people flights. They're really good at working you through. You know, if you have to get to Providence, they would try to get you into Boston instead or get you into Bradley or something. And so they, they sort of knew their way around the airports. They're really helpful. And so one thing I did was I could take these prior predictive distribution from models I was building and this produced sort of like cancellation. So I could go over to them and say like, hey, does this make sense? One thing my model thinks is like a possible outcome is that it's 7 p.m. You've got a flight at 8.15 out of Bradley and Hartford, and you're going to Denver, and it's been delayed six hours. But your model thought that before seeing any data? Yeah. Okay. So I'm setting priors or something, yeah. and okay. they'll say, no, that doesn't make any sense, because if it's 7 p.m. and it's delayed six hours, that's going to be like 1 a.m. They're not going to delay the flight that much. They'll just cancel it at that point. Yeah, okay. And so this is how you pick up that, like, oh, there's like a limit to how much they delay the flights based on what time of day it is. And, yeah. and so then you can start getting all these uh, domain expertise in. Yeah. And we did that uh, by, by actually like plugging into what they were used to. So they were used to seeing like how much trouble the customer is in, being able to have sort of a dashboard and see like, here's what their situation is. 
And so if we had a model that could produce all the data on that dashboard, we could just put them in front of all these simulated events and see them saying like, no, this is stupid. This is stupid. That one's good. That one's stupid. Uh, yeah. you know, and, and then yeah, you, you can sort of refine your priors or add their domain expertise into the models that you're building. Uh, yeah. And get more informative priors into the model. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's great. Yeah, so that that was also a really fun experience. And yeah, I loved how like helpful they were. They they sort of bought into the program, which I think we were lucky to have. Yeah, and actually, uh, is there something interesting to say about how you did the web interface for this uh, project, <laughs> or because no. I know you do also a little of, uh, yeah. of web dev too. So. Yeah, no, there's nothing interesting. I got to spend it to, to learn how to use like Vue.js. It feels like every two or three years, I get an excuse to learn like whatever the latest web framework is. But uh, it's fun to play with for a little while. And then I figure out why I do data science instead of web dev. And it's, I just can't keep up with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, well, great. Maybe it's a good time now to, to look at the future because our time is almost up. So I wonder what the future of probabilistic programming looks like to you. We talked about a lot of framework like TensorFlow Probability, Pyro, PyMC4, but I know there are also others like Jax or Rainier. So I guess it's interesting to get your insight about that. I think it's getting more and more attention. It'll be interesting. It, it feels as though there are people from the deep learning world who are getting more into probabilistic programming, writing down like the, the models that they are fitting, while at the same time, the, the sort of probabilistic programming languages are getting more and more sophisticated. And so it feels like there's some place to meet in the middle there. In terms of the frameworks that I see popping up, Jax in particular that you mentioned seems extremely interesting. So Jax is a project out of Google. It's very similar to and in fact built by some of the same people that built the Autograd project that was from the Harvard Information Processing Systems Lab. And Jax is nice because essentially you import jax.numpy as NP and that's all you have to do. It, it also provides a function called grad and you sort of get rid of all the boilerplate you have in a lot of these other languages like TensorFlow. Once you have jax.numpy, you define some function that is just writing NumPy code you can call grad on that function. Now you've got a gradient of the function and it's just that simple. This feels natural to write. It's it's really fast to prototype in. And then it also, the big advantage it has over Autograd is it can use XLA compilation so it can run on your GPUs um, or TPUs if you happen to have access to them. So it can run really fast as well. So JAX is really exciting. I believe that there's some experimental work in the TensorFlow project now to actually target JAX as a backend in addition to TensorFlow, which is interesting from TensorFlow probability. Yeah. Are the samplers implemented in JAX directly or do they plug to something else to do the model fitting? That's a simple question with a surprisingly complicated answer, right? <laughs> in MCMC, the way you do the sampling is really you just need access to the log probability of a model. And with these modern samplers that we use, you also need the gradient of the log probability. If you write the samplers in a way that they just accept a function, which is the log probability, and accept a function, which is the gradient of the log probability, then it sort of doesn't care what your backend was. Yeah. Um, there was actually a while where we were working on PyMC4 where we wanted to have a pluggable backend. Yeah. It turns out that there's just enough optimizations you can do towards TensorFlow that that was feeling overwhelming to try to keep maintaining this abstract layer in between the backends and the front end. So we end up just supporting TensorFlow and we'll, we will put 
TensorFlow optimizations like XLA compilation into PyMC4. But yeah, so I think that they don't have to change their samplers overly much in TensorFlow probability in order to use either JAX or TensorFlow. I think it just changes how they put together how the probability distributions are defined. Yeah, what do you give as input to your sampler? Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. So I think that's a really exciting thing. I'm glad you mentioned Rainier. Uh, That's a Stripe project that Avi Bryant has been sort of pushing. Um, It's similar to maybe Stan, and he rolled his own uh, automatic differentiation library. It's got a lot of interesting ideas that you can do because it's written in Scala. And so it's this functional language, it's strongly typed. So you get a lot of speed from running on the JVM, you get a lot of like other benefits from being in that sort of ecosystem. Our biggest problem with PyMC3 is often dealing with shapes. I mentioned this earlier that like, if you have a two-dimensional thing and then you take a thousand samples on four chains, all of a sudden you've got this four-dimensional object he doesn't understand how you could have this shape problem because if you have types, you can just do this type checking and make sure all the shapes are going to work out before you even start. Whereas we just keep on running into these problems sort of head first. So I think that that's a really interesting project. And I sort of wonder whether something like that or something like there's a number of interesting projects in Julia as well, where they can also take advantage of the type system in Julia. In the Python world, I'm sort of most excited about JAX, but I also see like I'm happy that PyTorch and TensorFlow exist. And I feel like that there's going to be a lot of really interesting projects built on those two. I feel like I'm glad that working towards the TensorFlow side of things on PyMC4, partly because I feel like Pyro is doing a fantastic job building on top of PyTorch. And it seems good for there to be a diversity of approaches to doing these sorts of projects. But then also in the broader ecosystem, I'm interested to see if Julia or Scala can sort of get into the data science ecosystem in a stronger way and start taking some sort of mind share away from Python. Okay. We just mentioned PyTorch, but uh, what would be the elevator pitch about that for the listeners? Oh, about PyTorch? Yeah. This won't necessarily be like an ode to PyTorch, but um, TensorFlow and TensorFlow probability, I think the biggest strength and biggest weakness is how much control you have over the things that you write. And this leads to you having to write a ton of boilerplate often. So I think PyMC4, the biggest help is going to be writing a lot of that boilerplate and sending sensible defaults on top of TensorFlow probability models. Mm. PyTorch doesn't have as much boilerplate. You can often iterate and prototype much faster. I think that's where Jax is also a very interesting project in that both of them sort of aim to be able to just be a drop-in replacement for NumPy. And by the way, you also get gradients of your functions. And then Pyro plugs into PyTorch to define the probabilistic models. Yeah, exactly. And so so PyMC3 is on top of Theano. Which is this deep learning framework, which is no longer supported. There's a number of these probabilistic programming frameworks that just sit on top of deep learning frameworks, and we take advantage of the fact that you get gradients, the gradients we use for these cutting edge sampling algorithms. So PyTorch has Pyro, TensorFlow has TensorFlow Probability, Theano has PyMC3, and soon, hopefully, TensorFlow will also have PyMC4. Yeah. A lot of these probabilistic programming languages are just sitting on top of yeah. automatic differentiation libraries. Okay. So mainly the difference is either the backend or the programming language the PPLs are implementing on. Yep, exactly. Yeah, that's fascinating, yeah. But I guess this diversity is not uh, going anywhere anytime soon from what you said. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I certainly hope so. I think it's really interesting seeing all the good work being done in all these languages. Yeah, but um, do you fear that these languages, these different platforms evolve 
independently from each other or do you think they will have some merges and bridges because I guess when you're used to doing your model in Pyro, mm -hmm. then maybe you're not gonna write your models every day also in PyMC4 or 3 and also in JAX and, or Stan or something like that. So that's a definite question. One thing that I think still gives PyMC3 a advantage over other languages is we have a pretty well-developed tuning algorithm. And so we'll take a few samples at the start of doing your inference and tune a bunch of parameters automatically. Most other languages don't have that. And I think we're trying harder to like sort of reach out and help out. I went through and I contributed a step size adaptation to TensorFlow probability recently. And I think that sort of work is dangerous to stay in just one place. You know, if, if someone has the best mass matrix adaptation, if someone else has the best step size tuning, it would be wonderful if all these sort of like stayed in the same place. A lot of probabilistic programming languages owe thanks to the Stan project. They publish papers and they discuss in the open the algorithm changes that they're going to make. We certainly take a lot of cues from there. I've talked to Avi Bryant about how we do our tuning. And I think he's interested, I'm not sure if he's gotten to it yet, but I think he's interested in, in sort of matching the mass matrix adaptation that we do over into Rainier. I think sort of getting out these improvements to the general population of probabilistic programming languages is really important. Yeah, yeah, because as I was saying, I guess that users maybe don't have uh, the same elasticity to the framework that uh, developers do. I mean, you can switch between different probabilistic frameworks, but maybe the users, especially in industry where the time constraint is high, they can't really afford to switch from stand to PMC4 or PMC4 to Rainier for any other project. Yeah, exactly. And it's really helpful to be able to tell someone like, hey, it doesn't matter if you pick Stan or yeah. PyMC3, they're both just implementing the no U-turn sampler. But like at this point, they implement slightly different tuning algorithms. And that's where you end up one or two orders of magnitude difference is if you have this good tuning versus not having this good yeah. tuning. So Colin, I took a lot of your time, but uh, <laughs> it was really a fascinating conversation. Just before letting you go, I have to ask you the two questions I ask uh, every guest. Because the interesting thing about that is the distribution of answers. <laughs> so the first question is, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? That's really good. One that I feel like I might love to go to is some sort of mashup of like Dask and PyMC3 or Dask and a probabilistic programming language. It feels like if you can identify independencies well enough and you're writing everything down as a DAG, you might be able to distribute your computing among multiple different computers. I think Stan has already done part of this, but it would be beautiful to see that as just sort of a clean project. That might be it. Some sort of like mashup of distributed computing with uh, probabilistic programming, I think would be a fun thing that, that would take far too long for me to even like start attempting it on my own. Definitely interesting, yeah. The second question then uh, would be if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, well, who would it be? I struggled over this and that there are a lot of... Um, yeah, that's the hard thing of this question. I, I know. Mm. And my answer is almost a tragedy in that the answer might be Gilbert Strang, Professor Gilbert Strang, who's right about two miles from where we sit right now. <laughs> uh, right, He's over at MIT. Oh, maybe we can go visit him right now. <laughs> I know. Go, go find him. Um, I mean, I watched his linear algebra course when I was like a first year in grad school, and it like really opened my eyes to how good linear algebra could be. I ended up getting to teach linear algebra three or four times later, and I sort of introduced on the first day by saying like, hey, if you actually want to learn linear algebra, if you don't care about college credits, you should just leave and go watch 
Professor Strang's videos. They're excellent. On top of like, it seems like he's just like a really well-liked person. He seems really thoughtful. His textbooks are incredible. So yeah, I think Professor Strang right over there. I, I even worked, I was at the Center for Civic Media at MIT, you know, a block away from his office for a year. And I never pulled up the courage to go knock on his door. But <laughs> probably worth at least a thank you note at this point. Yeah, yeah. Professor Strang, if you're listening, <laughs> Colin would like to have dinner with you. Well, thank you, Colin. It's been really a, a great pleasure. I hope this conversation about everything you do will motivate listeners to learn Bayesian stat and maybe even deploy it in industry with beautiful visualizations. <laughs> They have no excuse now. Thank uh, you so much, Alex. Yeah, yeah, of course. I put the links again in the show notes of your blog, uh, the articles and the frameworks we mentioned. So thank you again, Colin, for taking the time and being on this show. Yeah, thank you. This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbayesstats.anvil.app for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's learnbayesstats.anvil.app. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. Thanks so much for listening. You're truly a good Bayesian. and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.